0: Welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, This podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, so on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion during the live stream, and we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. And so this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right, I'm super excited for my guest today. I always say that, but I always love these conversations. So, Brian, I'm so happy to have you with us. Um, how you doing today, man?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Coach John.
0: Yeah, you bet. So, you know what? Before we dive into your story, which is a really amazing story, by the way, I'm just I'm just going to give people a preview or a yeah, little little shout out. You got a great, great story and amazing work you're doing. Uh, where what are you up to right now, and where can people find you?
1: Yeah, I'm going to start with the second question first, which is where Mm -hmm. can people find me? That's getoutofyourhead.com. That's my website for the mental health stuff. If you want to find me on social media, the best place uh, for the brand is on Instagram. The handle there is getoutofyourhead. What I'm up to now, I will say it's it's a little tough where uh, I'm not able to pursue the mental health stuff full time just because I I can't pull a salary, a full salary out of it. So Mm -hmm. it's more of a nights and weekends passion project. I keep myself afloat with the full time. Um, a gig in software development, which is yeah. actually a lot of fun and kind of uh, feeds into some of the mental health stuff a little bit, or at least like becomes a form of therapy for me, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, in terms of the brand, what am I working on right now? Uh, I had a second book come out in November of last year, that books on depression, I'm sure we'll jump into that one a little bit uh, in a little bit. And then also just trying to focus yeah. on, you know, writing more blog posts, getting more content out there to folks. Cause it's like, you know, I can't necessarily crank out a book every year, even every couple of years. Um, so it's just continuing to try to connect with the audience and help folks and uh, do podcasts like this one where I'm getting the message out there.
0: That, that's absolutely amazing. And you know, you know what the cool thing about um, coaching is, is, is cause I've been in your shoes before where it takes time to actually build a practice for people to even, even like become aware that you exist in a world where there's a lot of, there's a lot of coaches out there. And so, you know, the, the software development is like the vehicle that's going to help you get to be able to do this impactful work even more. You know, what fascinates me is how people end up doing something like this, because I almost everyone I meet uh, doing some kind of, especially doing some kind of coaching has been through some major struggles in life. And that's what has led them to this place of, you know, I've got somewhere now I'm a little further on the journey. Now I can kind of help people out. And so if we, if we re- rewind the clock, just kind of a little bit here, um, you know, obviously your work is around mental health because of some of the struggles that you've had. Maybe when was the first time in your life you kind of became aware that there's there's maybe not something quite right and started having that discussion around mental health?
1: Yeah, it started in high school for sure and then kind of exacerbated itself in college. One of those things where like because I didn't come from a medical family or you know have a clinical background myself, I just didn't really know what it was that I was dealing with. And I think we also, uh, you know, pre, pre-interview, pre we we're talking a little bit about the state of mental health in the world in general, where, you know, let's say in 2007, the conversation around mental illness just wasn't that large. Yeah, uh, and obviously yeah. we still have a, a ways to go, but so you kind of take those different factors and, and add them up. And for me, it became the situation where it was like, I knew that I didn't feel well uh, on a regular basis. Like I, I would just say that I felt nervous, but I didn't know right. that much more Um, than that like self-diagnosis right so Mm -hmm. um, it took a lot of different instances and and none of these are like crazy life-changing things or anything like that but um, you know I always come back to the idea that you know whether you're dealing with anxiety depression OCD something something of that nature like you are still regardless of the circumstance or the details behind the circumstance what you're dealing with is a lot of pain right Uh, and you want to get rid of that pain so it's it's really hard when we start comparing like, oh, this person's anxious about X and this person's anxious about Y. Um, I mm. don't think it's a great idea to necessarily say like, oh, that, that situation is not as bad as this one or something like that, right? Right. Because um,
0: these situations are all in one sense, they're relative to maybe our life experience and our resilience. And so what to one person seems like no big deal to somebody else could feel like something really, really significant. So I'm kind of curious. Now that you have obviously the benefit of hindsight perspective and the knowledge that you have looking back, did you notice when you look back, I wonder if there were some things maybe even earlier in childhood that when you look back, you go, huh, the signs were probably there a little bit earlier, but maybe I didn't, I didn't even know what I was looking for. You know?
1: Yeah, I I do think you're right. I I can definitely point back to several instances where it was like, you know, I had to give a presentation at school or I thought I got in trouble at school or something like that. I remember one morning where I, I thought that I was, you know, going to get called down to the principal's office, there was some incident at school. And I was very nervous that morning. And I actually like <sighs> spilled my orange juice at the table. <laughs> oh, and my dad was like, dude, what's up? Like, you you look, you know, you look off or something like that. And I kind of just blamed the orange juice, like on the incident, I was like, you use that as an excuse to get myself out of talking about it. Um, that one, I don't know, that might have been like fifth grade or something like that. But I definitely go back and I think to myself, yeah, I got nervous in a lot of different scenarios. And Um, I guess it's, you know, some people will say like, well, we all get nervous, don't we? And it's like, I I think we do all get nervous, but it comes down to like, you know, is it a chronic thing? Is it something that plagues you for a a lot of time? And is it hindering you from living a normal life? I think that as I I got older, and I went into specific scenarios, whether it was like a date with a girl that I liked or um, anticipating going skydiving or something like that, like these ideas and the thoughts behind them, they they would kind of hijack my brain. And it would be hard for me to like focus on things for days at a time. And I think when you get to that point, you finally say to yourself, like, I I really got to do something about this. This is different than like, you know, somebody says, Hey, do you want to come over? And I'm nervous for like 30
0: seconds. Right. Right. When it, when it starts to become like crippling in a sense, when it starts to affect our ability to function normally, that's where we might, say there's kind of a delineation between the normal sort of human experience of having nerves over something that you know means something to us and now this is starting to affect my ability to function and even affecting my executive function we would call it where um yeah it's it's i can't think clearly because this is drawing me into a much more primal part of my brain and so the old prefrontal cortex there is is not really uh front and center the way that it should be
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also I was talking about this on a recent podcast, you know, just the research around the brain itself where, you know, the Mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex like that is, as you alluded to, like we get that executive functioning, we're able to maybe say like, hey, I don't want to think about this stuff today, I'm going to methodically put some of these thoughts down. Um, A lot of research around the brain says that like frontal lobe development doesn't happen for a while, right? So for a 13 year old, this is going to be a lot more difficult than say for a 27 year old. Uh, And that's not to say that it's not difficult for 27 year olds or uh, somebody older than that, but I think just as you get older, things do change a little bit.
0: Mm. How did how did this affect like your your life? Maybe going through your teen years and socializing and and moving into young adulthood. How how did that affect you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely affected me on a social aspect. I would say most of like most of it probably around like women. Uh, I think some of it being uh, you know like fears of intimacy and whatnot. And then you get to college, and it's like, hey everybody's a little nervous of, of things like that. Why don't we just drink, right? And then we'll feel better. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, we won't be anxious and whatnot. And when you're 18, it seems so harmless, you know, like everybody drinks and we're having fun and whatnot. And then you get to a certain point where you say to yourself, like, I am masking something, right? And I am not dealing with something that I need to deal with. Now, obviously that's not necessarily to say that you need to go all the way deep into your anxiety and face it and call it out and whatnot. Uh, but there is a nice balance you can find where you say to yourself, like, look, what I may be doing with alcohol or some other drug or whatever is not beneficial for me. So let me do a little research like or introspection to see what it is that I am hiding. And then let me, you know, kind of analyze that a little bit. If I have to work with a therapist to unpack that and see, um, you know, maybe come up with some new helpful insights for myself. I think that was definitely part of the journey as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. When it, when did something go click? Like, maybe I should talk to a professional about this to try to learn more. Because as you alluded to, like, er, you know, I'm, I'm 40. I'm not sure if you've ticked over 40 yet. You're still young and handsome there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, as you've alluded to, like earlier on, 10, 15, 20 years ago, these sorts of conversations weren't really happening. And so it's like we didn't even know where to go to to ask for help and therapy was this thing that you did if something was seriously wrong with you. So if you were kind of like trying to normalize it, and go well, you know, I can, I can deal with it, I can live with this, and I, I can cope with this. Um, so when did something go click and you're like, mm, I need to talk to a professional about this because there has to be a better way.
1: Yeah, a couple different times, and honestly, like the kind of person that I talked to varied throughout uh, my lifetime or, or the history of it. So like early on in college. Um, you know, had a couple panic attacks or, or had one in high school, had one in, in college, uh, both of them revolving around like a situation with a girl that I liked. And mm-hmm. for me, that was a really, both of them were pivotal moments where I said to myself, like, you know, when you're 18, you feel as though the only thing that's important is women, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. uh, going to the gym and partying and whatnot, but you, you you don't have that worldly perspective or whatever it is to say like, hey, you know, what's really important is like my health and my family and my well being and all that stuff. Um, so those were pivotal moments where, you know, I just didn't have that, that right perspective. And I said to myself, like those panic attacks and the feelings that I, the residual effects of them are affecting the way that I socialize, the way that I date. Uh, and I don't want these things to hold me back anymore. So I want to go talk to people, right? I want to talk to a therapist. I want to read a bunch of different books and journal articles and just get some, you know, more downloads on, on what's going on here. Um, so that started one of the conversations I, I, I went through a pretty, um, I, I don't know. I hate I hate to like stress it too much because I, I, I don't want to like make it sound as though what I've been through is any more difficult than uh, somebody else. But I went through a relatively difficult uh, period of depression, senior year of college. And then that was where I like reconnected with therapists because I was sort of, I was in a really, really dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, I don't know, there is some threshold in your mind where you say to yourself, like, before it before the threshold, I'm willing to tough this one out or, or kind of go it on my own. And once you reach kind of mm. the, the past the the line in the sand, I think you really start to say, like, I need help. I, I can't handle this on my own. Maybe like, you know, maybe let's not be so daunting with it and say help means like find ourselves in a psychiatric ward and right, you know, right, right. up on all these different things. But like just talking to people and understanding what it is we're dealing with and finding, you know, a beneficial path through.
0: Yeah, you know, that first time you had a panic attack, uh, were you aware that it was a panic attack or what? Did it, how did it register for you?
1: Yeah, I, I mostly just said that I was like really nervous, like insanely nervous, you know, to the point mm-hmm. where my heart was racing. I was sort of shaking like visibly. Um, I don't know what the right word is it's like, <laughs> other than, yeah, yeah. you know, agitated, nervous, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so that that was also part of the difficulty of the journey was me saying to myself, like, I know physically and emotionally, whatever I've experienced, but I don't have the tangible terms to be able to go to Google to, you know, mm. some of the search engines and say like this, you know, help with X. And I think part of that is the fact that the, the, the mental health conversation has grown a lot since 2007, 2008. Uh, and part of it is also the amount of, you know, I, I think technology in general, we've got all these different search engines that are way more powerful than they were before. And we have mm. tons of content out there uh, across the internet where, um, you know, if I'm going back to that day where I had a panic attack in college, I woke up and I was like, okay, let me find some information. And I just typed in like, I'm nervous, help with nervousness, whatever. And I'm pulling these like $50 eBooks off of people's personal websites. And a lot of them, I mean, I'm not trying to speak too much, uh, too poorly of folks. I don't even know who they were, but some of them just weren't good. Right. And it's like, it's nice that you can now go to Amazon. You can say, Hey, what are the best sellers in the category? Let me read the top 50 books, the top 10 books, whatever I have time for. Um, mm-hmm. And That's going to be pretty beneficial overall, I think.
0: Yeah, and one of the themes that comes up uh, a few times here is is your ability to sort of, I guess, form uh, healthy relationships. Um, when when you would get into a relationship, did you ever describe or kind of try to explain that this is something that I experienced, or was it something you tried to keep hidden?
1: Definitely try to keep hidden, and I think that was one thing that I learned as I went on was that uh, you know the the amount of candor you're willing to have sort of it not only it not only helps alleviate some of the anxiety that you feel, but it also creates a deeper relationship. And I will say like, this is probably, I mean, we can go down this path if you want, but um, this is probably, could be a different topic for uh, another conversation, but I actually uh, went on a psychedelic retreat in January. uh, And one of the messages that uh, I got from that was that I'm still not, you know, candid enough. I I withhold things. I I could have deeper relationships if I were willing uh, to Mm -hmm. open my mouth a little bit more.
0: Yeah, well, that's definitely, I think, an interesting experience to to explore. I think it'd, it'd, be, it'd be worth it because people are people are looking for tools out there. They're looking for um, just some kind of answer. And I think it's important for people to understand because, I mean, I've dealt with anxiety and sort of the, I say depression, but really the way that I would describe it is anxiety like burns out your nervous system. And then when you reach you, you can only redline it for so long before if your, your nervous system goes, I need a break and fall into this really, this like depression where it would feel like I was just staring into blackness. And, uh, you know, I don't really have another, you know this huge heavy black cloud would just come over my head and I couldn't seem to lift it off my head kind of thing is, is how, how I might describe it. And so at some point in time like you started obviously having some success with what you were experiencing. What what tools were, were helpful for you that you started to implement?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was sort of, I kind of go back to this idea, I was listening to a book recently and they were saying, you know, if you really think about it, most of our like breakthroughs don't actually come in like moments of time, right? They, they mm-hmm. come, uh, over the course of us living our lives, trying out different things and seeing where we get. And then eventually we kind of look back and we say, Hey, like I have made some progress here. Right. So for yeah. me, it was, it was really just like, you know, reading a bunch of different books, attending different seminars, listening to uh, podcasts and YouTube, um, interviews and stuff like that. And sort of just like slowly synthesizing some of the information and then going to situations where normally I would feel really anxious. And I probably still did feel anxious Mm -hmm. as I went to them, but I was trying out different strategies that I had picked up along the way. And then, you know, over the course of time, two years, five years, whatever it is, I was able to look back and say to myself, Hey, I put that strategy to the test for four years and I can tell you damn well that it didn't work. At least not for me. Obviously, everything uh, is a little bit subjective, but uh, yeah. that was kind of the process in general. I think some of those strategies. One of them, and, and it really you know speaks to the ethos of my brand, was basically you know the brand is called Get Out of Your Head, and it's the notion that like a lot of people tell us, hey, if you want to. Succeed in some area, or achieve a, a goal, or uh, achieve a certain outcome. You know, you need to visualize it in your mind first. And I'm not saying that that can't be helpful for anyone on the planet. But what I am saying is that for the anxiously inclined, that can be a psychological death sentence. Right? The next thing you know, you're trying to see yourself, uh, you know, holding some trophy. Uh, performing in a certain fashion, whatever, and your anxiety is is in there mixing things up and you're feeling the resistance and you're trying to push it out and you can't and you can't and you can't. Next thing you know, you're in some ruminative cycle uh, and you feel really, really bad. So uh, that was one of the strategies for me that helped a lot was to be able to say like, dude, like you got to drop the thoughts. You got to get out of your head. You got to just allow yourself to live in the moment. And then whenever it is that you get to the situation that you're fearing, just continue to stay present to the best of your ability.
0: Yeah, you've touched on a couple of really, really important things. And one of the things I actually wanted to wind it back is just this idea that a breakthrough doesn't necessarily come at one moment in time, like a lightning bolt from heaven kind of thing. Because very often when we're working through some sort of challenge or obstacle we're facing, that's kind of what we want. I just want this, you know, like that. I want it to be over with. And in reality, it's more like you chip away at it. And, and eventually there is that breaking point where, where there is where you, you really notice something has changed, but it takes time to get to that place. And I mean, being willing to kind of kind of put in the reps. The other thing you touched on, I think is really it's really interesting because um, at the time of recording this, I I just done a live stream earlier today about creating a wellness vision for people. And that is about creating a picture in your head. Um, of what you want so you, you can kind of steer towards that um, and so I think you know you're highlighting something really interesting that that can be and I, I absolutely agree for someone who is anxiously inclined that can be a really really difficult thing because you're taking because our, our brains don't really distinguish between what we picture in our mind you think about having a dream and you wake up and your heart is racing and your palms are sweaty and you go well hang on a sec like this was just a, a picture in my head that's all this dream is, or watching a movie and feeling emotions. So you're crying or, or, or your heart is thumping. You're scared. Or you're freaked out because you're watching some kind of psychological thriller. Like these are all just like things that we're picturing in our head. And yet it's creating a physiological response in our body. So the power of the mind is really, uh, really quite something, but you know, uh, you know, you said like the kind of the core of your ethos and brand here is get out of your head. And sometimes that might sound like a really blunt phrase for some people, For sure. Uh, but so when when you're saying that, what are you what are you sort of picturing people doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, we we could jump into it a little bit. I, be, I guess in the first book, uh, so th- uh, I'll just give you the title. It's uh, "Get Out of Your Head: A Toolkit for Living with and Overcoming Anxiety." So that's. Um, so you know, I've got, I got a book on anxiety a book on depression. Um, in the first half of that book, I lay out a framework, which I call the 10 steps to getting out of your head. And there are 10 simple steps that you can walk through when you're feeling anxious to try to mitigate some of the negative feelings that you're experiencing. Um, you know, the, the first one on that is uh first step on that list is just to breathe. And uh, I, I like to say like these steps, they're not meant to be rocket science. Like I'm not here to say like, Hey, I have all the answers and just implement these steps and you'll be great. Right. It's kind of just more reminders of like, Hey, look. You are probably in your head, and I don't say that in a condescending way. I say it in yeah. a loving way, right? I, I I want to help you get uh, to a spot where you feel a little bit be- better. And I, you know, there's a lot of science that shows that when we deep, uh, excuse me, when we breathe deeply, uh, when we exhale deeply we activate our parasympathetic nervous systems. And that's, you know, the part of the nervous system that's responsible for calming us down, slowing us down. And then also, uh, you know, it's like when we're revved up, when we're anxious, our ability to think critically or logically, or at least rationally, um, sort of falls out the window a little bit. So we're like, sometimes we get wrapped up in all these different ideas and we're freaking out over things that may or may not be accurate or true or likely to happen or something like that. And the reason why I put breathe as, you know, the first step in the list was just to say like, hey, if you can sit down for like 60 seconds, 30 seconds, breathe it out real quick, it's possible. I'm not saying it's, it's uh, you know, 100% mm-hmm. likely, but it's possible then you then look back at what you were worried about and say, oh, wait a second, like I was, I was really wrapped up in that for a minute. Um, yeah. I don't want to think that way anymore. I don't want to give so much attention to that. And yeah, sure. It's definitely possible that whatever it is that you're dealing with is, is, is stronger than that. And you're still anxious. Right. And that's why there's 10 steps and not one. So, Mm. um, kind of just providing folks with, with simple tools like that.
0: Yeah, and for the, for those who are listening to the audio version of this, um, you know, we're looking at a visual in the live stream. Get out of your head, and you've got a picture of the brain, and it looks like that the brain is like a a viper, you know, and it's it's kind of a cool thought provoking infographic there. It it would almost um maybe look like that, you know, I don't want to say like your brain is your enemy, but like there there's something happening in there. You know what 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 inspired you to create that kind of visual?
1: yeah um, I could talk about this for for hours honestly, but uh so the the original book looked a little bit different than it does now, uh, and so mm. did the brand. actually, there was a different book that came out with the same name uh, that looked way too much like mine, and people were getting confused, so I sat down with my designer and I was like, I think we need to switch it up a little bit uh mm. he also you know uh, he had read my book before and he was in favor of something like that. He was like, you know th- the original cover that I had on the book. Uh, was not exactly. He was like, he's like, it's not necessarily a full brand. I I want you to mm. have that. So we sat down. We did a full branding exercise. Went through a bunch of different things. And he was like, yes, your brand is is a little bit in in your face, right? Like the content <laughs> that you write about. That's that's the way the narratives go. So let's mirror that with the imagery, of the um, you know the the icon uh, of the actual brand itself. There are a lot of different symbols that we can pull out of uh, the actual you know, the snake brain design. So yes, you talked about, you know, your, your mind being the enemy or your enemy or something like that. That is definitely in there. I think I sort of look at it as, okay, so our, if our mind is like a snake and snakes can coil, then they can kind of wrap around us and, and, and almost like try to kill us. Right. And I think hmm. we can take that figuratively in the sense that like our minds can be scary places. We can also take that literally, right. Uh, like obviously, and sadly, uh, some folks like, and I don't say this, like, I'm not saying this to uh, like down on anyone. It's just like matter of fact, right. It's like, some people are driven to, uh, you know, suicide or suicidal tendencies because of the way that their minds work. And it's, it's really sad, but you know, I kind of wanted to, to give light or, you know, sort of uh, make mention of that a little bit subtly uh, in the branding itself. Um, And then to speak
0: to the reality. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Like we don't necessarily want to shy away from um, the the difficult reality that that people are facing because, uh, and you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, um, I said, I'll say the S word here, which is again, a topic that maybe people are afraid or, or are really uncomfortable having this conversation about. But it's like, if we don't ever have these conversations, it, it remains something shameful that people keep hidden. And it shouldn't necessarily be that, you know, Uh, Back a couple of seasons ago on this podcast, you know, I interviewed a stand up comedian who had twice attempted to take his life. And, you know, he was very vulnerable and open in terms of sharing how he got to that place and what got him out of that place and what saved him. And, you know, uh, kudos tip tip of the hat to uh, uh, Jeff Macalino, actually is his name. You know, if you want to go back to season two, I'm not sure what the episode number is, but season two of this podcast, a really, really great episode where he just opened up and shared, this is what got me to that place. And this is what got me out of that place. If we don't ever have that conversation, because I, I think of a couple of things and, it, you know, number one, um, suicide is probably three times higher in men than than, than women. And I think it's a really, really important thing to talk about because we do we do have a crisis of, I think, male mental health and masculine sort of a, idealism or masculine imagery in and of itself and how it's manifesting in our society today, which is really, in some very um, uncomfortable ways, you know? Um, but the other part of it is sometimes for people, it feels like that's the only option. I don't see another way out of this. And I can't imagine continuing to live for the rest of my life with this being my experience. And so you're wanting to equip people with a sense of hope saying your present reality does not have to be your destiny. There is a possibly different scenario here.
1: Most definitely, yeah, and that was the the basis behind my second book, which is uh, sorry, shameless plug, but uh no, plug out, away, man. Get out of your head, Volume Two: Navigating the Abyss of Depression. You know, it's it, it is really tough, right? It's it's tough to talk about these things. It's also tough to talk about them in a way that doesn't make it sound like we are disparaging. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I always like to say, like, if you're listening and you're struggling, like, man, I'm right there with you, man. I've been through some of that hell, and it is. Ooh, it is really, really painful. And it's not easy to talk about, you know, some of your experiences, whether you're depressed, or, you know, you, you do feel as though maybe, uh, you know, taking your own life is an option, like, it, that is so damn hard. But continuing to have conversations like these ones, as you mentioned, John, is like, it's just, it, it's so important in today's society, I think that uh, the, the more that we, obviously, we don't want to normalize in the sense that like, Uh, like, we we don't want it to be okay that people look at that as an option or take that route. But at the same time, we want to normalize the idea that it is okay to feel lousy and to talk. Mm. about.
0: Yeah. And and I think to have the discussion that probably because I imagine those people that have suicidal tendencies would think I must be the only one that feels this way. And that's why I can't talk about it. And it's like, I think there are many people who have experienced things like this. And I, I think we want, we need to remove the stigma away from having these types of thoughts enter our heads rather than say like, there's, you know, there's something wrong with you. It's like, well, yes, there there's a struggle here, but it's not really a character or a moral judgment and and really, you know, showing people compassion for when they experience something like this. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's important that we have the willingness to to speak about these topics here. And so, you know, thinking about depression because we, we've touched on on anxiety, um, but you've also obviously experienced have some experience with depression as well. Do you, you know? I mentioned my my experience. It was more a byproduct of intense anxiety, burning out my nervous system, and, and bring this black cloud over my head for maybe a couple of weeks at a time that I couldn't seem to shake. And and you know, I think it was Jim Carrey who who said one time he thought about uh, depressed as deep rest. And it was helpful for me to visualize it as such, just that like my nervous system was burnt out. that it was like, I burned through a month's worth of energy in two weeks. You know, how, how did visual or sorry, how did depression sort of manifest for you?
1: Yeah. I've, I've been through, I've been through two larger episodes of it. I, I, you know, it's like, it depends on who you talk to, how it gets classified. I would say mm. maybe the first one was major depressive disorder. And the second one was dy- dysthymia, which is sort of like low grade depression for a couple of years. Um, I talk about in the book that there are different ways by which we can, we can arrive at the feeling of being depressed. Right. And there are also a bunch of different uh, diagnoses on depression, right? So it's like uh, you have seasonal affective disorder, which is, you know, maybe in the winter time you feel down, you feel depressed for several months because of, you know, not getting enough sunlight. You may have postpartum depression where it's like somebody who's just delivered a child um, can fall into a depressive rut for a while. Uh, you could also like, as I mentioned, you know, dysthymia where it's you know a couple of years where you don't, you know, it's, um, manageable but also you feel depressed like on a, on a lower level uh, mm-hmm. sort of like a, a lower grade for a couple of years um, so I, I kind of cover a bunch of those different paths into depression in the book I would say for me uh, you know it was like the first one was uh, at, at some point I'll give the whole story it'll be probably part of another book I'm not exactly sure but I'm just sort of dealing with some inner demons that like pop back in my life uh, senior year of college that I kind of thought I had put to bed. Um, and feeling mm. as though, you know, I I almost held these beliefs in my in my mind of like, I want X, and I can't get uh, and I can't ever get X. And so you know, this situation is is hopeless, right? Uh, I talk about in the second book, de- depression, like just a, in terms of like, giving a layman's um, definition to the disease, it's basically, uh, you know, a disease of helplessness and hopelessness. And so it's like, if we ever find ourselves in a situation where we don't think, where we don't like the way that things are going, like, and and I mean that in like a you know, relatively extreme way. And then we also don't feel empowered to change them or feel as though they can never change. Uh, it's pretty easy for us for, uh, to fall back into a state uh, where we feel depressed. So um, that was definitely a, a common theme in some of my experiences. Uh, the second episode, or like the second long term episode, Mm. Uh, the one that really sparked the conversation around the book or, or led me to actually write that book, that was sort of like a confluence of a bunch of different factors. Uh, you know, it was like I really, like for one reason or another, really dive deep into, and it was by accident, like I dive deep into like climate science and got really depressed over like the state of the world and the future and, uh, you know, like our our mm. our futures and stuff like that. Really kind uh, of
0: finding yourself into like this existential type crisis and feel, a feeling of hopelessness maybe.
1: Absolutely. Yep. So that was definitely in there. I I had switched jobs and I kind of like told myself, uh, you know, this was just another part of the depression itself, but told myself that like, hey, if I'm just able to get this job, then everything's going to be great. Right. And I found myself a few months later, really not liking that job whatsoever. And kind of like, again, finding myself or thinking, uh, you know, if I had told myself that this was what I wanted and I have it and now I don't want it at all and I'm totally miserable in this situation, then can anything ever, you know, get to the point where I feel good about it? Um, so and, a lot of different factors. I'm I'm definitely missing a few, uh, but it was yeah. it was definitely a challenging point in my life. And then my grandmother passed away, who I was really really close with. And it's like she she lived a great life. She was 90 years old, and mm-hmm. um, not one of those where it's like. Uh, you know, some horrible tragedy or anything like that. But when you have these events stack on top of one another, you can definitely get pulled down uh, into yeah. the abyss of depression.
0: Right. You, you start to experience really, really strong emotions, and maybe we could even say one of the nervous systems' ways of of maybe pulling you out of experiencing these very strong emotions is a type of like almost shutdown. And depression can feel like that, where it's really difficult to feel an emotion because your nervous system is like not registering them as a kind of as a protective mechanism because. Uh, maybe there's this underlying fear that's not even consciously expressed, but this underlying fear that I don't have the capacity to handle the fullness of this emotion or the full intensity of this emotion. So the response is to shut down from being able to feel that.
1: Definitely. That is, I, I like that definition. I also like the definition of like, If you just feel like at the end of your rope for a really long time, right? It's like one is sort of the complete absence of emotion. The other is like way too much emotion for a long period of time. And I don't know how to deal with it. It's almost overwhelmed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when we think about this, because obviously you you work with people and you help them um, because of your live experience, and I know uh, we want to we'll save some of the good stuff for the book. So you know, because I, I I think obviously you have some great insight here, and I really encourage people to to take a look at one or both of the books. I, I love that you wrote a companion series. I think that's really really powerful. Um, But how did you how did you really start or when did you start seeing like maybe light at the end of the tunnel where you felt like, okay, there is hope because we have these conversations around like mental health, mental illness and so on. And I almost wish we would talk about mental fitness. So really get this conversation going about the fact that just in the same way that you can strengthen your body through through the pursuit of physical fitness, that we can strengthen our mind. We can strengthen our brain, That it isn't necessarily our destiny to always be in the grips of these things. It may not be that they ever entirely go away. But, you know, for example, I think my last major anxiety episode happened in 2019. And so I've been a little over three years since my last major anxiety episode. Now, there are times where I can kind of feel it creeping up a little bit. But I think I'm I'm attuned enough to the experience of it that when I feel it starting to happen, I kind of have steps that I take to start to, you know, ratchet down my nervousness and piece by piece and go, okay, I need to step back in a few of these things. So for you, how did you start to dig yourself out and what started to give you a sense of hope?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're approaching that conversation or that question is a little interesting for me because there are multiple layers here, right? It's like mm-hmm. with book one and book two, I mean, they were totally different journeys if I'm being honest, yeah, right? It's like, yeah, of course. I, I, when I wrote the first book, I was 27, uh, published it when I was 28 and I was just like, I don't know. I was one of those like confident, you know, millennials. I was just like, "Yep, I got this all figured out. I'm good now. And then like, even actually before I hit publish on that book, I I fell into, you know, the depressive state that eventually became the basis of the second book. And so it was like two totally different journeys, uh, totally unexpected. I think, Uh, you know, on the anxiety side, there was definitely a summer. It was 2015 I was just going through like this prolonged anxious episode, It was, you know, nothing crazy, but at the same time, like I just didn't feel well. And mm-hmm. I started like, I, I was in it for the whole summer where I just felt as though I like I had no choice, but to continue like read books, listen to interviews, listen to podcasts, just like think through a bunch of things. And I'm not necessarily saying I recommend that, right. It's like, uh, sure. Read some of the best books, uh, try out a few things, but definitely don't be in your head for an entire summer. That's not a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yep. it was like, I started applying some of those strategies to my own situations and finding as though they were working, right? It was like when I was 21 and I was trying certain things, I didn't feel as any, as though anything worked besides like, unfortunately, like, you know, have a couple beers and, you know, get into a social scene or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the anxiety side, it was somewhere around, you know, like the age of 25, where I was like synthesizing all these ideas. I had been trying them out for a while, finally starting to feel as though like I was having some success. And that was really the impetus behind wanting to actually write that manuscript i said to myself like you know i'm not going to write a book about anxiety if, if i'm bsing people like that makes no mm. sense right that's just not the kind of person that i am uh, and also it doesn't serve anyone you know what i mean at the end of the day this is a journey where i'm trying to help people and if i'm not actually doing that there is no point to it so um at, at that point you know i was 25 I, I was like okay let's get some of these insights uh, i have them in different you know word documents and notes on my phone and whatnot. And I was like, let's, let's kind of break them down and and come up with the, the rough formula for a manuscript. And then on the depression side, I think some of it was like, because I had already started the brand and I had already written a book and my mind was sort of trained to say like, okay, take these experiences, try to learn from them, figure out what you find, and then share that information with the world. I think I was able to do that a little bit quicker. That's not to say it wasn't mm-hmm. a, a painful process, but, you know, I would say somewhere within a year of that time frame, or, you know, I actually even started writing that book like six months into that depressive episode. And yeah. the book actually changed a lot because it was like, I was working through this journey. Um, and I, in some ways it's like, I don't know if it was conscious or subconscious, but I didn't actually finish and publish the book until, um, you know, November of 2022, excuse me, 2021. Yeah. So it was like, maybe like at times I resisted it or whatever, cause I was still unsure of what exactly to say and what to offer to people. Um, and I think what I sort of settled on there was like a combination of, yes, there are strategies that you can put into place that can help you. But what mm-hmm. we really need on this dark journey of depression is somebody with us to give yeah. us that hope. Right. And that was this tone that I stroke in this struck in the second book, which is mm-hmm. just be like, dude, this stuff is really, really hard. I'm not going to talk, you know, I'm not going to come at you and say like, Hey, I've figured this all out or whatever. It's more to say, like, if we work through this together, we can maybe get through this a little bit faster. Um, mm-hmm. We'll take some of those strategies that I've, you know, kind of inserted in there along the way. But at the end of the day, what we really need is some love and some hope.
0: And I want to I want to shine a light on that because that that's super, super important. And I, I love that you have the humility to say, because, I mean, I, I there's a parallel here. I work with people in the realm of weight loss, uh, primarily and emotional eating. And, you, you know, I often say weight loss is a proxy goal and like food is an emotional anesthetic. And so very often we find ourselves using it in that way. Weight loss is really, really challenging to accomplish. And we've been sold it should be fast and easy for a very, very long time. But the evidence just shows it is not true. This is a lifelong journey, but we can get you to a place where it becomes easier to navigate and manage. And So I think it's it's really um, crucial that you have the willingness to kind of be up front and say, hey, this is still a work in progress for me. I have come a long way. I've made huge amounts of progress, but this will continue to be a work in progress, as it will for probably anybody here. So you're not selling a, you know, a miracle cure where it's like, um, you know, read this book and your life will be forever changed and you'll never experience this again. We need that human connection. So what I'm thinking of is how would you suggest that somebody, because maybe someone's listening to this and they think, well, I, I know someone who's either dealing with anxiety or dealing with depression. And I don't know what to say or do. And maybe maybe it's sort of like two different things, but how would you suggest somebody be a support to another person when they're experiencing this?
1: Yeah, it, it is a hard question to answer. I think part of it is actually getting the assumption right in the first place, right? If, if you if you really know that somebody's dealing with anxiety, if they have kind of mentioned it to you, or you've you've seen you know their internet history or something like that, then I think that's a little bit easier. I think it can become difficult if we like maybe make a guess about it and then we're wrong. Um, but right, let's right. let's start from the presupposition that we know that somebody is dealing with something, right? I think. I think the most important thing, honestly, and I, I know everybody is different, so it's, it's a little hard to say, but I think the most important thing is to approach somebody and, and basically let them know that you are there for them, right? It's like, I am not going to judge you. Uh, I am not here to you know, cast different um, labels on you or whatever it is. I know that maybe these things are difficult for you. Whatever you want to do, I am here for you, right? If you want to seek out a therapist, I will help you find therapists. If you, you know, you want to go figure out and see what medications might work for you, I'll take you to all your therapist appointments. Um, if there is, you know, some sort of self-help group or whatever it is that you want to go to, I'll go to the first meeting with you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the most important thing is like letting people know that you are actually there, right? And you actually yeah. care because yeah. it's, uh, I think so much of the mental health journey stems from a feeling of being disconnected and it's like and when being you can- alone. Yeah, exactly. And it's like when you can extend your hand and just say, look, like I'm here uh, sort of passively, sort of actively in the sense that like, I'm not going to step on your toes, but I'm here when you need me. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's sort of uh, more important than anything else.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. Just even from my own experience, the ability to be present with somebody when they're going through a difficult experience and not try to take it on yourself as the responsibility to fix that problem. I think it's really, really important. You know, like I, I kind of in one sense can kind of coached my wife on how to be with me when maybe I was having an anxiety episode, you know, because I tried to hide it for, for the first year and a half or so that I was wrestling with this. I tried to hide it from her and, and I don't know, be the man and be the strong guy and pretend that it's nothing and brush it off and so on and so forth. But eventually I couldn't keep hiding it. I was like, okay, I need to, you know, and she already knew what was going on. She's, she's not dumb. You know, um, she had, she's she women, was, women are not, they, they, pick you, know. On that, so. <laughs> you know, and she's like, I know I've just been waiting for you to ask me to, you know, if I could help you. And so then, you know, the onus was kind of on me to say, like, you know, I, I, I'm not asking you to fix this. In fact, that's not your responsibility. And maybe that's not what I need. All I need is to be present mm-hmm. with me right now. So when this starts happening, I'm going to start doing these breathing exercises you, you touch on breathing. That's so, so, so powerful. You know, I have this breathing in four, six, eight. It's easy to remember four seconds in, six seconds hold, eight seconds out. And it's really fantastic to practice this in times of calm. So don't only deploy it when you're experiencing anxiety, because, you know, one thing that happened to me in the beginning was I would only deploy it when I was feeling anxious or stressed. And my brain started to make this connection between if you start breathing like this, I'm feeling anxious. And I was like, so it's like, don't learn to use a fire extinguisher when there's a fire in your kitchen learn how to use one before that and, and practice it. Like I was in the military for a number of years, we drill so that like when we hit the real thing, we already, you know, we already know what we're doing and we don't freak out kind of thing. And so, um, you know, I would practice this with my wife and I would say, and when I didn't have to hide what I was experiencing, it made it so, so, so much easier. So, but I think just for anybody who might be supporting somebody else, just lift the burden. You can lift the burden off your own shoulders. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to make it all right. And it's not even really within your power to do that. The best thing you can do to start out is just be present with them so they're not alone in this experience.
1: Most definitely. And I I, I loved a lot of things you said there. Uh, I think on the breathing side, right, or, or some strategy when it comes to, uh, you know, do you do you practice it beforehand? Do you practice it in the moment? Uh, what What came to my mind was like, uh, obviously you made a great point. And it's like your brain can make these associations that don't really serve you. The thing that I like to do, or what, what really came up in my mind was the idea that, okay, if we haven't done the practicing of the breathing, and then we find ourselves in an anxious situation, guess what? Our subconscious minds are not going to be as well trained to pull out that breathing as a tool and say like, let's right. en- you know enact that now. Um, so it's like when our brains get hijacked, it's like, I'm just freaking out and I have no idea what to do. So it's like, if you have done that practice, you know, when you are not in an anxious state previously, uh, or, you know, before you get into that anxious state, I think it it can really help for sure.
0: So uh, one last thing I wanted to touch on, uh, you, you, you left a teaser and that was, you went on this sort of psychedelic experience. And so whatever you feel comfortable sharing, I'd be really interested to kind of learn what that was like for you and, and how that created maybe a shift in your life.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. I'll give as many details as we can fit in, but I probably will withhold a tiny bit. Um, yeah. So there's a place in Florida called SoulQuest. Uh, they've got a website like it's I, they they definitely yeah,
0: uh, I've they, heard of them.
1: Yeah, they're pretty big. They have a, an episode on a Netflix series. I think it's called Unwell, maybe. So they're like out yes. there promoting, trying to right. get people to come. And I was there. was Probably eighty people that weekend, maybe a hundred. It is a cool place. It's kind of funny. It's like this guy basically just bought a bunch of land and a house in Orlando, and mm. he comes and uh, you know people come for the weekend, and you know he he converted this place into basically a retreat center. Uh, and you go and you take uh, this sort of uh, I don't know what you call it, like ancient medicine uh, from mm. from the Amazon called ayahuasca. It's this brew that they make from a couple different plants, and it's a, you know it's a it's a psychedelic drug, and you go off on this trip. And, you know, you can, you can take anywhere from one to three, uh, you can partake in anywhere from one to three ceremonies, they call it. So it's like each, each time that you drink the tea, uh, is, is a ceremony. It's really like a block of like four hours or something like that. Uh, and you know, when, when you go off on this journey, like everybody has a little bit of a different experience. I, I, my, my friends actually went last year and that was what really pushed me to do it, especially knowing that I've struggled with some of these things in my life and, and just wanted to see what else was out there. Uh, One of my friends calls it a colonoscopy for the mind. And I like (laughs) you go and you're like, dude, you hit it right on the head. I mean, this thing, it's it's very powerful. You get a lot. You you definitely can get a lot of good insights out of it. That's not to say that everybody does. I I definitely want to be careful there. Um, But you kind of start off by like this thing is for at least for me, it was just pulling any and everything out of my mind and forcing me to basically like come to terms with some of my greatest fears in life. And it was really fascinating in that sense where it's like, how did you know about that? Like, I haven't thought about that in six years or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And it comes Mm -hmm. up, man, and you're dealing with it. And uh, it's again, it's different for everybody. But like for me, what was really, really bizarre was like it, it is it's a very unsettling process. But you some you know, if you don't resist it and you you work through some of the difficulties, you do get uh, to, uh, some good insights. And so it was like, mine started off, or at least like, you know, at first you're seeing some like interesting patterns and colors and whatnot. Uh, and then like it kind of shifted and my parents came up and I'm very close with my parents. I love them very Mm -hmm. much. They're very supportive. And the, the medicine was telling me, it was like, I was getting these like weird vibes that like my parents were dead or something like that. And I was freaking out. It was like, dude, you gotta get, let go of your parents. They're gone, whatever. And I'm just like, no, 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 I can't do this. I can't do this. I popped up off of my mat at the place. And I'm like, I am so freaked out. Like, why did I come here? This is brutal. Like, I do not want to experience this. Uh, And then I, you know, you take five minutes, you take a breather and you're like, okay, I'm going to go back into it. So basically when you close your eyes and lay back, that's when you go into this, like, they kind of call it movie mode. You start seeing a bunch of visions and whatnot. Um, For the most part, if you open your eyes, the visions will stop, but you may still be, you know, unsettled or something like that.
0: So this is really interesting. So you go to this place, uh, I'm like, do you feel a bit of some nerves, like as, as like the tea is prepared and you're about to drink this tea? And I, and I, I think that's where I heard of it as I saw an episode of this unwell. And as so see you, you drink the tea and you've got a, a handler. probably isn't the right word, a support person or something with you monitoring you, making sure that you're safe as you go through this experience and whatnot. Um, you drink the tea. How long is it after you drink the tea? Do you start to feel it's taking effect?
1: It's different for everybody. For me, I want to say it was like 30 minutes. It, it, it was quick. It was definitely quick.
0: Yeah. So you, you lay down so you can you can base because it, there's an element of it, you know, I, because I've never been on like a psychedelic trip, you know. And so I wondered to myself, is there an element of like conscious awareness, you know, like because we often we often see like these movie moments where people are completely spaced out and seemingly disconnected from reality. But from what you're describing, it seems like you can still connect with reality.
1: Yeah. My friend had described it to me and he's like, you're not really like messed up, right? You are relatively sober in a way like mm-hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't want to drive a car and you definitely can. not Right. Uh, yes. you, or you definitely should not. But at the yes. same time, it's not it's not the same as like if you were to take a weed brownie, like, mm-hmm. a you know, a decent dose of a weed brownie, like you would be messed up. On this stuff, it's, it's like a, I don't, I don't want to use the wrong terms, but it's like, it is like a different level of consciousness. Like Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. feel the same level of intoxication as like, you know, if you normally go out and drink like five to six drinks uh, on a, like a party night, it's the equivalent of feeling like, you know, one or two drinks of inebriation, but in a slightly different style, if that makes any sense, it's more, it's more mental than, than anything
0: right and then you you um you close your eyes and you start you go into movie mode and all these sort of visualizations come up and i know one big part of the ayahuasca is the purging which is like vomiting um which i think can potentially to dehydration do you consume something so that when you purge like you know you're not just sort of dry heaving or or how does that work
1: not really uh one of the funny things too is and i'll get to the question but They have you go on a relatively strict diet and they, you know, they give you a medical exam and make sure that you haven't taken any illicit drugs and whatnot, because there are really bad side effects that can come up uh, if if you take certain things and then and then you do the drugs as well. Um, One of the difficulties with the diet is that, you know, I think you end you're supposed to stop eating by three o'clock the day that you do the first ceremony. And then I think the first ceremony is eight o'clock, maybe nine o'clock, depending on when it all goes down. So you don't actually have that much in your stomach. Uh, right. When it comes to the purging though, the interesting thing is like the, what most of us think of as purging is just vomiting. But as, right. when you go there and you talk to the shamans or the guides, they will say that purging can be pretty much anything. Uh, and for me that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't vomiting. I didn't actually get to that point, but it, it could be shaking uh, it could be like moving your body. It could be cracking your knuckles. It could be yawning. It could be passing gas, something like that. You may actually go to the bathroom. Like, you know, you're conscious enough to be like, Hey, can somebody help me go like walk to the bathroom? Um, but mm-hmm. there are all sor- sorts of different ways that you purge. Uh, and the purging is like, I don't really know what it is on like a you know physiological level or or whatever, like sure, a yeah. really scientific level, but how I can describe it from my own experience is, you have these things get pulled out of your mind, right? We're doing this colonoscopy of the mind and something comes up that's really scary that's like really embedded in your nervous system and your mind or, or whoever you're speaking to, like some deity or whatever is saying like, you have to deal with this. And how you deal with it is you, I'm not trying to glamorize it. Like it's mm-hmm. it's scary, man. It's real scary. Yeah. Um, but you, you sort of like give yourself enough time to look at it and process it and question it. And then if you get to the point um, of purging, what will happen is, you know, you crack your knuckles or you yawn or whatever, and that thing goes away It like you see it fade away. Um, it Again, it, it's different for everyone. But one of the things that was really interesting was they have these things called integrations, which is basically, you know, after you have a ceremony, you you gather in small groups and you talk about your experiences. And for the folks that had purges, that was a lot uh, that was a, a very common experience. I, I don't want to like, I don't want to take this person's story, but, uh, and, and I'll show And because of that, I'll leave some details out, but this person had had a traumatic past. Um, and so their trauma came up and they were like, I really don't feel well. I need to go to the bathroom. And they went to the bathroom. And once they did that, they were like, that trauma is out of me now. It is past. Um, you know, I, I'd be really curious to see, to follow up a few months later and see if that has, um,
0: So, the lasting effect. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But in the moment, it was really powerful to hear, man. Like, it was crazy.
0: Yeah. So, you had, how was, so what was purging like for you then?
1: A couple yawns, a couple uh, passing of gas.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was it, did that feel like a letdown, I guess? Because maybe you'd seen, because I think that the most dramatized one is the vomiting. Were you expecting that that would maybe happen to you?
1: Definitely not a letdown, like the opposite of a letdown. I was terrified. That I, was gonna, that I was gonna throw up. I don't like that feeling. And I think like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, the only times I throw up is if I've drank too much or if I'm really sick. And it's like in both of those scenarios, you're already like so messed up that it's like, yeah, it still stinks, but it's sort of whatever. Whereas when you're on ayahuasca, you're like kind of sober in a way where it's like, you know, it's gonna be painful. So I was resisting that a little bit. Part of me does wonder if I maybe could have gone deeper if I didn't have that fear, but I, we made some good progress uh, up mm-hmm. there. And I say up there as in like, you know, eventually I it's again different for everyone. Don't want to like glamorize it or whatever, but like, oh man, this thing took me off to some other realm. Like we were we were up in the cloud somewhere. It was very bizarre.
0: Yeah, yeah. Quite quite an experience to go through. And it's amazing kind of like what our what our minds would visualize. So you know, just as as we wind out, I want to ask kind of one more question. You don't have to have a definite answer for this, but having gone through this experience, I don't know. Are you any kind of religious or do you have any sort of spiritual beliefs? And if not, did this change how you might have beliefs like that?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I I have definitely struggled with my faith. Um, I, I grew up Catholic. I, it's like one of those things where it's like, I want to believe. I really, really do. Uh, and I'm not saying that to say that I don't. It's just that I struggle with it sometimes. Uh, one of the reasons why I felt called to this experience was I wanted some sort of you know, spiritual connection to say like, there is something larger than myself. Uh, I definitely feel as though I got that in some capacity. It would, for me, it was not the same exact style in which some of my friends described. So I had a friend who was like, dude, I literally talked to God. Like I, I talked mm-hmm. to him, her, whatever. Right. And so I went, and I was like, please, like, I want to talk to God. But I also had a lot of other things that I wanted to cover. And I think those, right. those came up first. Um, and I don't know. It was like, so it was definitely moving. It was definitely profound. It definitely was spiritual. And it felt it's like, man, like there is something else out there. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, But that sort of renewed some kind of faith in a vague way for me. And that was definitely beneficial. And I mean, just the fact that like, at least for me, it's again, it's going to be different for everyone. But like, we hit on everything, like most just about everything that I went there, like concerns, questions, fears, whatever, we talked about all that stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, yeah, I know it's me and I like the drug is, you know, working on my brain and so it's picking out mm-hmm. the things that I want to talk about, but it went deep and it was like, okay, this maybe this thing is more powerful than I but it's definitely more powerful than I am and maybe, you know, maybe it is some some spiritual piece or component or something like that and that that was definitely Heartwarming for sure. It's like if I yeah. I think if I were to go back, I would probably you you go in and they tell you to go in with intentions and say, like, you know, speak your intentions into your cup and drink your tea and and see what happens. And so my intentions at the moment were different than uh, maybe, you know, a month before that I said I wanted to talk to God. So uh, but yeah. one thing that was I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting was so I talked to. you know i alluded to the fact that like you know thing was telling me that like my parents were dead or something like that Mm -hmm. uh and i popped up i felt really really anxious like it was a really unsettling feeling eventually i went back into movie mode or whatever and like i had this out of body experience where i like saw myself fly out of the cabin that i was in we kind of went up into the cosmos which sounds absurd absolutely and it really is uh but when we got up there my parents were there but they were like Orbs or like deities, and they led me on this journey, and we went through all this interesting uh, stuff. And that, to me, that was the spiritual part. It was like, whoa, like there is more to physical reality than than maybe we know. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I struggle with—I uh, talk about it in the second book. It's like I struggle with you know meaning and like feel. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of my life? Whatever. And like some of the the voices and messages that I got were just so resounding. It was like, dude you're trying to figure out all these like large daunting questions, like get your own life in order, you know, uh, sort of, this like, yeah. oh, sort of this like Jordan Peterson kind of vibe. And I was like, clean up okay, your room. <laughs> okay, dude, I'm going to go home. I'm going to clean up my room. I actually
0: went home and bought a condo the next week. Uh, right, right. And, and things have been
1: going good since then. So we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. That, that's so interesting. And you know, uh, the, the, the thought that makes me kind of curious then is to think, well, I wonder if, um, you know, because I I I say that I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Um, I believe in a Creator, and it's not that I make a big deal of it. I don't wear it on my sleeve. I don't like make grand pronouncements. It's it's a personal thing for me. Um, but I wonder if maybe there's a lot of people who are resistant to the idea of there even even the existence of God because it's something they haven't experienced. But I wonder if our sometimes our own brain stops us from experiencing this. And you consuming something like ayahuasca really removed those inhibitions and opened the door that you could kind of experience something which then I'm kind of curious. I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder if it's possible for people to have an experience like this without necessarily taking a psychedelic substance, but that just happens to facilitate it because of the amount of resistance we would normally feel.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think, you know, we could, we could talk about this stuff for hours, but it's like (laughs) one of the difficulties, right. It's like, we like, I am, I'm a realist or like, you know, I look at things at at face value for the Mm -hmm. most part. Right. It's like I talk about in, in the second book, it's like one thing that I really struggled with was like, okay, I'm going to the Catholic church. And then all these, you know, all these priests are, you know, molesting little boys in my, in my uh, parish, not my parish, but like, you know, in the Northeast of of the U S it's like, how do you come to terms with that? How do you even claim to say that you are, you know, the, the one who is carrying on the message of of Christ or the God or God or Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. like that? Like that made no sense to me. So it was like it trying to, I guess what I'm getting at is like, I think for a lot of folks that they struggle with, like just going to church and having these sort of Normal experiences. And then it's like, okay, so it's like, I'm trying to find the supernatural in the natural, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go on an experience where maybe you do a psychedelic trip or something like that, and you have a supernatural experience. It's like, okay, I'm willing to listen now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, it, I think it speaks to, you know, really not putting any single human being up on a pedestal, which is really, really interesting because I think we as human beings do this, whether whether it's uh, a spiritual leader or whether it's like a famous athlete or uh, a movie star or a politician. We take these human beings and put them on pedestals and somehow assume in our eyes that they must be these like uh demigods could we say in a sense where they must they must behave in this infallible like perfectly pure way or something like that and then we act all surprised when we discover they're human beings who when they were put in a position that maybe the human mind doesn't actually do very well with that they behaved poorly yeah and and have done terrible and and atrocious things i think that's a a
1: nice way to put it uh, a good way to put it Uh, it's also it's like you know they said, don't worship false idols. And what do we do? Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. So man, that, that would be a fascinating, uh, another conversation to maybe dive into uh, when I, my, one of my other podcasts called it's not so black and white is currently on hiatus over the summer before maybe um, revive it in the fall um, for the next season. But that may be an interesting one to, to bring up there, but Man, it's been a, a super fascinating conversation, man. you got so much good to share in the world. I'm so glad that you're doing this, you know, get out of your head journey where you're connecting with people and offering them an avenue of support that, you know, maybe feels more accessible and more open than say maybe the traditional therapy route, not to knock traditional therapy. I don't mean that not to say that you're taking the place of that, but giving people another avenue that they can kind of explore on their journey of trying to come to a better place of mental health and mental fitness. So if you were to just offer people something to kind of take away, take away one nugget from this conversation and say, here's something you could apply in your life. Uh, I know it's a big question, but what would you share with people?
1: Yeah. Great question. Deep question. Um, It's, it's high level, but I think it's to remember that how you feel right now isn't always how you'll feel tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now. I mean that in the negative context, right? It's like, if you feel lousy today, and you say to yourself, or you forget the fact that how you are feeling could change, uh, you get yourself stuck in those feelings for longer, and then you feel worse even longer than you should, or you need to. Um, So I think it's important to remember that, like, Things can change. They often do. And not to lose sight of that. Right. It's like mm. I, it's not like none of that and none of this conversation is to downplay or belittle or anything like that. Like when you're going through hell, you're going through hell. Right. And give mm. yourself credit for that. Like don't don't take that away from yourself. But at the same time, remember that things can improve and they, they very well could. They probably will. So um, I don't know. I just like to leave people with you know that message of, of hope and, and faith and
0: whatnot. Hmm. Man, that's, that's so awesome. And thank you so much for being open and for sharing your own story, story and your own journey, because I think that really, that that is what truly impacts people when we see elements of hope, because we see elements of ourselves in other people's stories. And so thanks, man, so much for your time. I appreciate you being on the show today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. And I do just like before we sign off, I just want to say if folks are interested, if they're listening and interested in psychedelics, ayahuasca, something like that, please just do your research. Be careful. These are powerful drugs not Mm. to be mixed with, you know, other concoctions and, um, you know, substances and whatnot. So please just just be a little careful. We don't want to glamorize these things.
0: Yeah, yeah, do it. Do it if you're going to do it and pursue that. Do it in in the safest possible route. So I appreciate you you adding that caveat in there. And just one last time, maybe we'll just share where people can find you and learn a bit more about what you do. Uh, Get out of your got a couple of books here. On top of that, you also do some coaching, and you've got a blog, and you've got some merch. Like so, you know, you you have all of this amazing stuff here to support people in this journey. And I think it'd be amazing for people to to check that out and to to be inspired. So. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the plug. Awesome. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become. And I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So, whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you because if you're still here, Your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward.
1: Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life.